going to continue doing what we normally do. We're going to open up the scriptures now because we need to, if we want to learn to follow Jesus and grow in him, we need to listen to God. We need to hear his word. We need to see the incarnate word in Jesus. We need to obey his word and learn the life that is pleasing and transformative to God that we might actually enter into more fully the kingdom that we're in and have access to. Amen? So open up in your Bibles or uh, in your pamphlets to uh, the section, we're going to be in Romans 5, verses 1 through 10. We've been in a series called Bad Theology. Bad Theology. The reason is because oftentimes we kind of put Christianity on the side of our life, don't give too much thought and attention, and want kind of a microwaved version of the grand vision that the scriptures paint for us in the gospel. And what we end up with is this anemic, atrophied, small, sometimes very caricature version of Christianity. We hear about it all over the news, you know, like you just, you just believe and then you go to heaven when you die and God's just obligated to forgive you and so do whatever you want here and now, which is like the dirty little secret of the Western church in this kind of vision of Christianity. But scripture itself paints a picture that is deep, complex and rich, um, just as the gospel is deep and complex and rich. And so we're hoping that if we can just begin to expand our imagination when it comes to things like glory and grace and faith to a more biblical definition and live in the tensions, that we will find more reality with God in our daily life. And we'll find more power working through us to the world around us, that they too would be drawn in to his kingdom. So each week we're kind of unpacking a way that we may have been discipled or taught in the church in a way that's more lopsided than able to hold the tensions that scripture itself presents to us. So a couple weeks ago we talked about gospel. What is the gospel? Um, there are a lot of different definitions of the gospel. There are a lot of different emphases in the gospel. And the gospel is this rich declaration about what God has done for all of humanity and the cosmos, but it's also defined in scripture. Um, Jesus came declaring the gospel of God in Mark 1, 14 and 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Turn, repent. Metanoia means change the way that you think about all things because something new is here. And believe the gospel is what Jesus said. So put really simply, the gospel is the kingdom of God is here at hand in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And any of us can enter into it here and now, not just when we die and go to be with God. Today, we're asking a second question. It's about the gospel, but you could call it like gospel adjacent, maybe. Uh, it's not so much what is the gospel, but what's the point of the gospel? What's the point of the gospel? Now, getting the means and the aims right is very important in anything. If you make the aims into the means or the means into the aims, you get far off from where you ought to be. Um, for instance, it's election season right now. I don't know about you, but I'm receiving a whole forest worth of flyers in the mail. Vote for me! Bob Herzenberger has always stood with women to protect abortion rights. Californians aren't falling for Prop 27's online gambling scheme. Voter alert! This looks very official. 
The LA City Council and Board of Supervisors have failed us, as though it's like an official government <laughs> declaration. As your city council member, Sam Yebri will, and then lists what he will do for us. So let's take Sam. I don't know Sam. I have no horse in that race. Don't take this in as any sort of sponsorship. But uh, running for city council. Okay, let's say we go out and decide, okay, like we take our civic responsibility seriously. He seems to be the best candidate in our humble discernment. Uh, and he wins. Now imagine if Sam, two years from now, we walk in and he's just sitting there in his council office with his feet kicked up, just thinking about, I won. I did it. And now I'm here, I have an office, I have the title, a plaque. Think about the frustration that you would feel, almost the outrage. You gave Sam your vote. Why would you feel that? Well, because the vote is not the means in and of itself, or not the aim in and of itself. It's the means for an outcome. The desire was if you get put into office, you will be the one who can do a good job. But if, if Sam takes the means, the vote, and makes it the aim, he's just trying to win something. We'd be rightly indignant over that, right? So you see why it matters. Another example, this one's far more personal to me. Um, it's okay, happens a lot. <laughs> um, someone bumped into one of our standing signs and it went whoosh. Um, make a good security system at home. So a, another example, another example. Um, it's the Major League Baseball postseason right now. Go Padres! Ooh, all right. Enemy territory, enemy territory. Um, 162 game season, they play 162 games. It's way too long of a season. Um, but all of that in order to get to the playoffs. Now imagine my Mariners just made the playoffs from Seattle. They hadn't made it in 21 years. They had the longest drought for any professional sports team. The four major sports out of like all 120 teams, they were the one that had been the longest since they had made the playoffs. It was tragic, just constant tragedy, sorrow, and they made it. And I was so excited. But you want to know what I didn't say? I didn't say, great, we made it. Now we can just play three games, get swept, and go home. We did get swept and are going home. But you want to know what would have been upsetting is if the players afterwards in their interviews after they lost, they'd just say like, yeah, it was such a magical season. We're so glad that we made the playoffs. We accomplished our goal. Because the point of being in the playoffs, which is the A, it's the means, the aim is a World Series title. Like, we'd, I'd feel upset if they were just sitting there like, you know, we made it. We just wanted to go home and relax with our families. What's the point of the silliness? The point is, if we mix up aims and means, outcomes with methods, things start to go wrong. And I wanna to suggest to you that one of the reasons we see what should be caricatured in the church in the West and especially in America is because we've mixed up aims and means. So we're asking today, what is, what's the aim of the gospel? There's a person embedded in the gospel, God himself. 
and he has desire in achieving the gospel. There's a point to the gospel. And if we can take hold of it, it will shift not just our vision of God, not just how we think we're supposed to live, but how we view ourselves, how we experience church together, how the promises of God and all the rich declarations in Scripture can actually be experienced by us. Because I've been in ministry long enough in multiple churches in multiple cities to know our generation is aching for reality with God. We are done with just simple truth statements and syllogisms and theology that just rightly aligns a couple verses together um, and fits other verses that challenge us into the verses that we say and just comes up with a really smart system without an experienced reality and a kind of fruit that looks like the Jesus that we want to follow. It's all right. Hey. This is all our five years have been, guys. <laughs> Distraction. You should have been here when we were meeting on top of a parking garage and helicopters were flying over. True story, COVID. Ask about it at lunch. It'll be great. Okay. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word as we look at what is the point of the gospel? Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I'm going to read that last verse one more time. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. All right, let's pray and ask God's help. Holy Spirit, thank you that we gather here trusting that you are not only within us, but that you are among us. And we ask nothing less than for you to make the living, ruling, reigning, resurrected Jesus more real to us. Not that we would follow our feelings, but that our faith would be filled with experience that confirms the truth that we see, not only in Scripture, but throughout a long history of people who have followed Jesus and experienced the riches, the fullness, the power of the new life and the new creation that is found in Him. So, Lord, whatever anxieties, fears, pain, sorrow, troubles are uh, 
hurrying our hearts are weighing us down right now, we invite you to help us uh, look to Jesus through them, not to ignore them, but to take them as the very context of our life, our lived experience, knowing that that's where you meet us. It's why you came in the flesh. And so Jesus, please be our help now. And Father, watch over us. Make us into a family that exemplifies your kingdom for the honor and glory of Jesus. Amen. All right, go ahead and take a seat. A couple of really simple observations that we're going to make this morning. Uh, number one, most of us are familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul. If you've been in church for very long, if you've read through Scripture, um, you have read many of the Apostle Paul's writing. Two weeks ago, we read uh, of Jesus and his teaching in Mark, and today we're in uh, the letter of Romans, the letter to the Romans, one of the most theologically rich, complicated, hard-to-understand letters in the New Testament, but they have a unified message. They have a unified message. Um, sometimes we have such a hard time fitting the writings of the scriptures into a coherent vision of God that we actually want to kind of emphasize one and de-emphasize another. And so you could take our modern context and you could say, you know, what is the gospel? And we did this exercise a couple of weeks ago and there were a lot of really great truths that were shared. Um, but some people have gone so far as to say the gospel is, for instance, uh, one thing, Martin Luther thought that the book of James should actually just be cut out of the Bible because it couldn't possibly resonate and be reconciled with the message of the other authors of scripture. Very practical example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that was his point, right? Uh, faith, he, he specifically said, we're justified by faith alone, not through works, right? And James says, oh, you show me your faith apart from works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So faith without works is dead. That's right. Nice. So you see how that's, that, that's hard to reconcile. Wait, so faith is what saves us. Works prove to be the fruit of faith, and authors of Scripture themselves feel a tension in the way that they emphasize things. You see why this series is necessary. How do we live in the middle? Most of us, I hope, would say Paul preached this gospel that Jesus preached. Most of us think that Paul would say something like the gospel that Paul preached is like this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's directly from Romans 3. And are guilty before God's holy character. God is just, so he must hold us accountable, but also loving. So he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven if we just believe in him. And then we're promised that we will go to heaven when we die. So this... These points in the gospel actually flow from a really popular way of sharing the gospel that was founded here at UCLA. I don't know if you know this, but Bill Bright, the founder of Crew, boiled down the scriptures into a gospel presentation called the Romans Road, Four Spiritual Laws, whatever you want to call it, so that people could go out and radically share the gospel with as many people as possible. It's amazing. We need to be, in our day, we probably need to be more bold in sharing Jesus with people. 
but he learned those that specific methodology from a business person who said in my in marketing my business what i need to do is make something catchy is make something simple so that it's transmissible it's easily memorable so this is what bill bright came up with grateful for crew if any of you are part of crew think it does amazing work as an organization but remember last week we saw from the lips of Jesus that the gospel in its pure form is that the kingdom of God is at hand and Jesus is the promised Messiah through whom we find life with God how do we reconcile these two components these two gospel presentations I want to say really simply that some of us, well, I'll say it really simply in a second. I'm not ready there yet in my outline. Some of us would probably think that Paul would say the point of the gospel, what we're talking about today, is that people could be saved or forgiven of sins, um, or for those who are theologically minded in the room, some of you, that people can be justified by God, which is to say that people could be forgiven by God of their guilt due to their sins. Now, just to relieve any tension in the room, that is a precious truth in the scriptures that we need. You and I need forgiveness from God. We were created by him to walk with him, to know him, to live for him, to live with him. Jesus' death for our sins on the cross is the only reason that any of us can sit here with hope before the living God. But the question before us is, is justification the point of the gospel or the means? Bill Bright presented it as the means or the point. Sorry, I'm going to just keep butchering this. Hopefully that makes it more memorable for you. Which is which? Which is which? You got it. Oh, yeah, that one. Justification has often been presented as the aim of the gospel. As though God wants to make people who are morally guilty, morally clean, and then he's fine. Then he's satisfied. Look at Romans 5.1 with me. Paul says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. This is beautiful truth that we need. You need to know that some of you last night might have done something this weekend, whenever it might have been, that you feel so burdened and crippled with guilt. You feel like God, God will have a hard time overlooking that one. Maybe you can't even forgive yourself in your own kind of rationalization of, of who you are and what you've done. You need to know that when Jesus, the perfect one, the Lamb of God, laid his life down for you and for me, atonement was made. There's nothing that you can do to outsin the purity, the beauty, the holiness of Jesus Christ. If you trust him, free acceptance is yours. So as we talk about this, we're not downplaying what we need as people. But if we put justification as the aim, as though God just wants a bunch of pure people that can be with him forever in heaven, then we miss out on, well, then why, why do I need to love Jesus here and now? Why do I need a righteous life here and now? We create all these optional components of the Christian life because all of it's already been done by Jesus. My participation was not necessary. But Paul continues 
he spent a few chapters breaking down why justification is so essential. And for the most part, it had to do with why Jews and Gentiles needed to see that they were one in Jesus Christ, that the religious works of the law, like circumcision, particular feasts, um, Day of Atonement, were all finished in Jesus. So guess what? Gentiles didn't need to become Jews. We're sitting in Jews for Jesus right now. They own this building. Um, and we don't need to become Jewish people in order to become Christian followers of Jesus because of justification. This is great. We're united. Equal footing. Okay. So if we have equal footing, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll read that again. Since we have been justified by faith, okay, we have peace with God through Jesus. Paul presents here a pivot in his vision of what Jesus has done. Jesus is the narrow way through which no one, without which no one can get to God the Father. That's what he said in John 14. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. That's justification in Jesus. But on the other side, as you enter in through Jesus and continue to grow in Jesus, the big grand vision of life with God is the life of peace, flourishing, wholeness, recreation, resurrection life, purpose, and power. And it's not just for when you die. This is present tense language. If, if you've trusted Jesus, guess what? You're in. You have access. So, the point of the gospel is life with God. God formed you, desired you, created you to work in you, through you, walk with you, and spend all of eternity in the new creation, the heavens and the earth coming together with you deeply sharing in life. And we don't have time to get into it, but that fracturing, that isolation and alienation that Scripture talks about, where we have not lived with God and we don't learn intuitively or we don't know intuitively how to live with Him in our day-to-day -day life as we could, is the reason for every plague, peril, fear, sin, suffering, and sorrow in this world. The point of the Gospel, according to this passage of Scripture, is the relational presence of God dwelling among his people. I use that language, relational presence, because relationship is kind of watered down in our day. Like oftentimes you hear, Jesus died for you so you could have a relationship with God, but we kind of mean it in the same way that we could have a Facebook relationship with someone, where it's so superficial that it's actually a derogatory word for like a deep communion relationship. Relational presence means a withness that you, you're not alone because you're not alone and that you would feel like you're not alone. 
And that in those moments where you're longing to be seen and loved and accepted in the midst of all your failings, that human wiring for intimacy, that you would know you are seen and that you are loved by the Jesus who died for you and the Father who adopted you and the Spirit who dwells in you. This is a moment-by-moment thing. So when you're stressed at work and you feel like you're going to fail, you remember that the God of the universe is with you and you dwell in his kingdom. And so nothing can foil his plans for your life. And so you might fail. I failed miserably as a flag football coach yesterday. And I failed Wednesday night as a softball player. You'll notice the theme if you stick around long enough and get to know me. Um, I did thrive on the basketball court on Wednesday, so it wasn't, it wasn't all bad. But you want to know what? I literally had to walk around the block after my softball game. I was so embarrassed. I made like 10 errors at shortstop, like the most important position in the field. And I walked around the block afterwards, and I was like, all right, Lord, what are you going to tell me right now? Like, we need to talk, because do, something doesn't feel right in me. I feel like a failure, okay? Not like I feel like, oh, I failed, but oh, I feel like a failure. And there was nothing crazy. I'm not going to stand up here and say the heavens opened and God said, you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. <laughs> um, it was like, it was more one of those moments where it's like, oh yeah, and you're okay. You'll make it. It was like the strong fatherly hand on the shoulder saying, yeah, I know. Sometimes it sucks. <laughs> or maybe it's, it's like money starts to get tight. And so you feel like obedience to Jesus and living a generous life when you see Maseratis driving around and people wearing like Gucci and all the stuff that's like flaunting. And you're like, how am I ever going to get that ideal designer life if, if right now I'm living generously and I can't build up compound interest is like the silver bullet, right? <laughs> so we live from a scarcity mentality as though we're alone and as though our whole life is up to us, and even the quality of our life is up to us, when actually we live in our Father's kingdom. Abundance is ours. That's actually the Apostle Paul's argument for obedience in 1 Corinthians. He says, why are you bickering and suing each other? Don't you know that everything is yours already? You just got to wait long enough. Sometimes breaks through. So God with us and the flourishing that happens in that equation among a particular people in a place where it is just, we live in a miserable, terrified, anxious, alone place. You know this, right? No matter what sort of smile we can put on our face, no matter what car we can drive through the -the jack-in-the-box drive-thru. I saw a Maserati driving through the -the jack-in-the-box drive-thru near where I live, and I thought, that is the Christian life in our context. We are are sitting in Jesus Christ and settling for the fast food of the world, thinking that that's the thing that we can really live for. And it's just going to bottom us out. It's going to hollow us out. We're going to get miserably out of shape, feel terrible afterwards. When... It's breaking down. Um, (laughs) Better food is available. (laughs) Um, So, here's here's why it, it is the story of Scripture. The whole Old Testament is telling the story of that fracturing of the presence of God and people. And how God, through Israel, was bringing His presence back into a people. That's why the temple existed. That's why the promised land was there. 
The whole New Testament is about God getting people through Jesus Christ and the giving of the Spirit back into His presence. So if the Old Testament is Him getting His presence among people, though we couldn't enter in, big curtain, atonement, sacrifices, all the religious system that prevented sinful, fallen, alienated people from getting in, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that so that people could actually get back into His presence. And so you read in the Scriptures this paradox. God's here, He's everywhere, but I'm supposed to seek Him. What's with that? God's everywhere, but He's also particularly present. And so the Psalms portray this tension beautifully. They say, seek the Lord, seek His presence continually, give Him thanks, on and on and on. The Christian life is us learning as we follow Jesus to live the with God life more fully. The kingdom being here means the presence of God is here and accessible to you and I. That's what Paul's breaking down here. Let's look at it. In verses... In verse 1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So, in Jesus, this with God life means we have relational peace with God because Jesus died and rose for us. There's no hostility. There's no hostility between you and God if you are in Jesus Christ. You can never think, God's getting back at me for X and Y and Z. Woo! Lunch! Verse 2, through him we have access by faith into grace in which we stand. Really simply, Paul's saying, the security of your access to God is so sure in Jesus that all you need to do is participate with him to experience it. You have access to grace in which you stand. Some of us think that grace is just unmerited forgiveness. It's, again, one of those bad theology simplifications. When you read the word grace, charis, in the original Greek in the New Testament, the number of uses and the differentiation of them lead you to a conclusion that's much more like grace is the powerful presence of God among us, doing for us what we can't do ourselves. So if this, this life with God feels impossible in your life, join the club And let's learn the life of grace. Again in verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have hope not only that God will empower our partnership with Him by the power of grace, but that we will actually experience Him. Eugene Peterson called glory this kind of amorphic religious term that's in the Bible that we don't know quite what to do with. Maybe it's brightness, maybe it's weightiness. He called it the bright presence of God. Because wherever God's glory is beheld, His presence is experienced. That moment when you feel like you could reach out and touch Jesus, His kindness, His provision, prayer, whatever it might be, you are experiencing the glory of God. And here's the beauty of what Jesus has done. Your whole existence is onward and upward in terms of glory. It will end with face-to-face vision of Jesus, just as Caleb and Bell taught us when they were up here. We have great hope. 
In the with God life, there's no room for complaining for anything less than rejoicing. Even, verses 3 through 5 tell us, in our suffering. What kind of life is it that even in our suffering, we can rejoice? And I don't say that lightly. Many of you are in the midst of suffering, and I'm familiar with many of your stories, and I know that there are a lot more in here that I'm not familiar with. But the power of the life with God is such that in your suffering, when the world feels like it's narrowing into your pain, your outrage, your tears, your sorrow, you know that the outcome cannot be your undoing. Though it feels overwhelming, it will not lead to your being destroyed. It will not lead to your losing your grip on God because he is holding you. Paul unpacks that God's divine purpose in our suffering, sometimes we actually need suffering for our good. And we live in a moment where all we want is prosperity and comfort. And if we like grit our teeth at that and say, how could you God? We've actually lost sight of our deep desperation and need. In verses 6 through 10, we hear, if God justified us, made us right with him, while we were still sinners and even his enemies, how much more is he going to save us now? I love Paul's logic. Hey, when you wanted nothing to do with Jesus, when you were actively living apart from him, thinking you could do it on your own, if he came for you then and made a way back there, how much more now that you're in him is God going to be swooping in and saving you left and right? And again, our bad theology, we think that Paul using the word saved here is the saved for eternity. But it's just him saying, if he saved you from your sin, he's going to continue to save you. He's going to continue to save you. He's going to continue to save you. You have an unrighteous boss who just constantly overlooks you and wants to put you under his thumb. God will save you. So because of Jesus, we should never live in fear. If God saved us when we were enemies in love, how could he stop saving us now that we're sons and daughters? All right, last observation, verse 11. Paul finishes this section saying, actually verse 10, sorry, typo. We rejoice in God through Jesus. He's not saying we rejoice in memory of God. He's not saying we rejoice in thinking about God. He's literally cracking open the heart of the universe into Father, Son, and Spirit, this divine community that is three in one and one in three all at the same time, that is the bedrock of our cosmos. An isolated human being is not the most basic person unit-wise. A community is the most basic element of the universe and personhood. And when we are swept up into the life with God in Jesus, because the kingdom is here, what is offered to us is nothing less than participating in God's life himself. So imagine a home. 
Um, imagine, maybe, maybe some of you have, have actually uh, been adopted, I don't know, in the room. But imagine that you, you've been adopted into a home out of a, a difficult, painful, abusive, abandoned, whatever it might be, relationship upbringing. And you're invited to a home for your adoptive parents. You walk in through the door and you experience something very peculiar. Their eyes, they're looking at you. They're, they're asking you what you want for dinner or they're preparing a bed and a whole room for you. And they're, they're serving you. And you're thinking, okay, this is just the welcoming committee. They're gonna turn on me pretty quickly here. And then hours go by, days go by, you even fail and the worst parts of you get a hold of you and you deceive them, you steal, you do whatever it might be to even wrong them, and you still experience their love, maybe some of their discipline for your good. All the while, you are experiencing a dramatic reprogramming of your heart, mind, and soul. Because you've been programmed to think abandonment, abuse, neglect. That's what Paul is tapping into throughout the rest of this letter in Romans and what we see played out through the New Testament when the church is called a family of God, a household of God. We're sisters and brothers coming out of a culture that is so bent and warped and hopeless that we come in here and we bring that with us. And this is the household where we relearn this with God life. No more scarcity mentality. No more self-centered need for us to satisfy ourselves because no one else has our back. And that's who we want to be. Dang it, that's what God's done over the last five years. But if we get it wrong, if we think the gospel is simply us uh, being forgiven of our sins so we can go on, live however we want, it's as though we're sitting in the doorway between the outside and the inside. The only way in through Jesus Christ, but we're sitting there. And so we have a friend over and we step an inch to the left. We're like, oh, here's, here's the dining room. This is where we eat, working on getting some furniture that fits. Then you step another inch to the left in the doorway. And you say, here's the restroom. Uh, try not to like leave it all right here because then it'll pour over into the bedroom. And here's step another inch to the left. And you, here's the guest room. I know it's kind of like the same as the bedroom and the dining room. And the door's open. And if we could personify God enough to imagine him wooing us in and saying, what are you doing standing in the doorway? Get in here. And we're saying, no. How tragic. Like, it, it's funny, but it's tragic. And we're just waiting until we die, and then we fall on into the actual house, and God's like, I've been waiting for you. That's what whole generations have done in American Christianity. They've removed discipleship, which is simply learning to live in the home with God. And they've made it really easy and simple about a doorway. And so if you're, if you're saying, I want this. I don't even know where to begin. I want to give you two simple handles and invite you to the process that we're learning together. The first one is make it your absolute conviction 
that you must learn to pray. Prayer is the oxygen of that home in God. It is our communion with Him. Scripture builds us the clarity of the truth of the, the sandbox that we live in. Prayer and learning the life of the Spirit is the sand that we play in in our particular context. Conviction that you must pray. Second is learn the life of hospitality. We need to learn what it is to be a hospitable people in an age of aloneness, fear, image, building an image. Because hospitality receives people unconditionally who they are. And as a church, what that means is we welcome people in. We believe that Jesus is, all of us are projects for Jesus. Okay, so don't get me wrong. All of us need transformation. And we might even bring in some stuff that needs to be confronted every once in a while. And that'll be done hospitably too. But the reason that, like we stumbled into doing lunch afterwards on Sundays. There was no master plan for doing lunch. If you've been around here for a while, you've probably eaten tons of free meals. And it's great. We set aside about 15% of our whole annual budget for food. Okay? That's not an attractional model. It's not just trying to get people in so they start giving. And then we're like, okay, like, it's worth it. It's an investment. It's because Jesus himself ate meals with people. When we actually commune together over food, we're experiencing something of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in an invisible but real way that the Spirit is pleased to do. If you need a verse for that, Romans 15.2 says, Therefore, welcome one another as you yourselves have been welcomed by the Father in Jesus Christ. Prayer and hospitality, if we could learn those two things, oh my goodness what the reality of life with God would do inside of us, among us, and in our city. I am so confident. Five years, 50 years from now, if Jesus waits, 100 years from now when all of us are gone, UCLA is different. I don't even know if America exists. <laughs> and the church will exist. Um, the goal of the gospel, the point of the gospel, is us dwelling with God, shared life together in Him. Amen? Pray with me. Um, Jesus, what unfathomable riches we have. And we freely acknowledge how easily we set them aside, how easily we allow busyness to crowd out the home that you have invited us into. And so we simply ask, would you teach us um, not just to know we ought to pray, but to feel the urgency of committing ourselves more than we've committed ourselves to our career, our education, our three-point jumper, um, to learn to pray and to be radically committed to hospitality, to opening our homes, to opening our church, to sharing meals, to pursuing people, especially those who feel they could never come and be welcomed. And Holy Spirit, uh, make Jesus more real to us. Help us learn the life with God together for the sake of our city 
And please, would you save so many people from the hopelessness of their aloneness, of feeling the pressure of their life falls on them, the aimlessness of a life that was just a big bang and has no invitation into your divine life together. Please, Lord, pour out revival in our neighborhood, on campus, in our workplaces, in our apartments. Um, make us the kind of people that could participate in that, could be entrusted with that, who would give our time profoundly to that, who give our money profoundly to that. Um, free us, that Jesus would look as beautiful as he really is a little bit more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.